0: So today I'm going to talk about Hume on causal necessity. Uh, It's another of the two topics for which he's most famous, along with induction. Uh, I'm going to be giving you a slightly opinionated view uh, to help you, I hope, to make sense of how everything that he says about causation fits together. Uh, My story isn't the only possible one, but I think it's a plausible one, as you'll see. So we're going to talk about of the idea of necessary connection, that's section 1314 of the treatise, which is the main focus of Hume's discussion of causation there. Just to remind you of things we've already seen, earlier in Book One, Part Three, Hume has identified the components of the idea of causation as contiguity, priority in time, and necessary connection. And then, as we saw last time, In 136.3, he identifies constant conjunction as the basis of our ascription of necessary connection. So what he wants to say there is that when we find ourselves making uh, causal inferences, we do so on the basis of observed constant conjunctions. Having seen A followed by B again and again, we see an A, we naturally find ourselves ascribing uh, or expecting a B. And um, we're going to see that now being, being uh, identified by Hume as indeed the foundation of the idea that he's been looking for. Another reminder, uh, the copy principle. We've seen this before. Hume states it as the first principle of his theory of ideas. We saw that he takes it pretty much from John Locke, So Locke is an idea empiricist. He thinks that all of our ideas are copied from experience. And Hume takes this quite literally. He says that the contents of our minds are either impressions or ideas. Remember, impressions are either sense impressions or feelings. At least that seems to be how Hume thinks of them most of the time. And he quite explicitly argues that all our simple ideas, uh, the ones that can't be further broken down are directly copied from these impressions. We can, of course, make more complex ideas by putting the simples together, but if we want to get an understanding of what the simple ideas themselves mean, we have to go for the impressions. And he describes this in the inquiry as a new microscope or species of optics, a way of looking more closely at our ideas and understanding uh, their nature. So, in Treatise 1314, he's setting out with that in mind. Uh, he's seen that the idea of necessary connection is this crucial idea which is the main component of our idea of causation, and he's got the copy principle as a tool for shedding light on it. Uh, if you want to see a preview of the argument, look at the first paragraph of the section. He gives a précis essentially, of the whole argument there. <coughs> Now, we've seen this before, and what I want to do is to look at some puzzles that arise from Hume's discussion. Uh, You'll see that it's not as straightforward as you might think, and there are some quite deep puzzles about why Hume approaches things in just the way he does, and I'm going to suggest some possible solutions to those puzzles which seem to me to make uh, relatively good sense of the argument. So, as I say, we've seen this before. Hume is saying here, right at the beginning of the section, before he really gets into the meat of it, apart from having done that brief precy, he says, the terms of efficacy, agency, power, force, energy, necessity, connection, and productive quality are all nearly synonymous. So trying to define one of them in terms of the others is hopeless. Um, He then ends this Uh, Part saying, if this is a compound idea, it must arise from compound impressions, if simple from simple impressions. And he's then going to go and look for the impression from which it's derived. Now, there are two puzzles in this procedure. First of all, why is it that Hume takes for granted, without further ado, that all these various terms, like necessity, power, and force, are virtually synonymous? because it's not at all obvious that they are. For example, necessity sounds far more um, (laughs) ineluctable than power. You can have a power that tends towards some end without necessitating it, whereas necessity seems irresistible. So it seems odd... That he should assume that those are exactly synonymous. Secondly, it seems odd that he assumes that the idea of necessary connection is going to be a simple idea. In fact, that conflicts with what he said about relations. If you remember, when we talked about the theory of relations, he said that relations are complex ideas. And necessary connection sounds like a relation. Shouldn't it be a complex idea? So, why does Hume? without further ado, go looking for an impression from which it must be derived. Because if it's a complex idea, then it could be put together from a number of different simple ideas. Yet here he is apparently assuming that it it just is a simple idea itself. In the inquiry, by the way, he's entirely explicit about it. In criticising Locke, he says, Locke's explanation of the origin of the idea of necessary connection is no good... Because Locke himself knows that you can't get a simple idea in this way. So, again, we've got a puzzle. Why does Hume make this assumption? Now, I think the simplest solution to that is to see Hume as looking for a single common element of all of these ideas. So if you think of ideas like necessity, power, force, energy, productive quality, what do they all have in common? Well, one thing kind of bringing about or if you like, the other way around, one thing following from another. Uh, I've coined the term consequentiality for that, one thing being a consequence of another. Um, the term consequentiality, ha, ha, I, I, I like it because it combines the, the linking of the two without the overtone of necessity um, And unlike the term connection that Hume sometimes uses, it's asymmetrical. If you think of necessity, power, force, it's always the force from one thing to another, not the other way round. Necessity is typically one thing necessitating another, not the other way round. Whereas the term connection, uh, which is nice in the sense that it it drops the element of necessity, which we've said is is slightly um, untypical of that group, Um, unfortunately connection is symmetrical. If A is connected with B, then B is connected with A. Whereas if B is a consequence of A, it doesn't follow that A is a consequence of B. Okay. There's a third puzzle. Remember that Hume has said that necessary connection is a crucial component of our idea of cause. So he set out, back in one three two to identify the nature of of our idea of cause. That's what he's after. Now, the idea of cause is one that we all use all the time. If the idea of necessary connection is actually an essential element of our idea of cause, then we ought not even to be able to consider the thought of a cause which is less than necessary. That ought to be an obvious contradiction in terms. But it isn't. As Hume himself says, the vulgar attribute the uncertainty of events to such an uncertainty in the causes as makes the latter often fail of their usual influence. And this is a passage which he repeats in the inquiry. He's making that point in the context of drawing a distinction between the vulgar and the philosopher, if you like, the, the ordinary person and the scientist. The ordinary person, when they find that, say, their watch isn't working well, they just say, oh, sometimes it doesn't go. They're just attributing the uncertainty of events to an uncertainty in the causes. Sometimes it doesn't work. Whereas the scientist looks more carefully and realises that if it doesn't work now but it worked before, there must be some relevant difference. He digs deep and finds a cause underlying which explains the the lack of uniformity in the events. But at any rate, the point I'm making here is that on Hume's own account, the ordinary person believes in chancey causes. How can that be possible if causes are, by definition, necessary? If the idea of necessary connection really is an essential component of our idea of cause. So, again, I think that's explained if we see Hume not as looking for literally the idea of necessary connection, but rather the idea of something like consequentiality, one thing bringing about another, but not necessarily, necessarily. So, here is some corroborative evidence. If you go and look at Treatise 1314, and remember the title of that section is Of the Idea of Necessary Connection, you actually find that he refers to power and efficacy about three times more often than he does to necessary connection. Um, Another point is that in the inquiry, section 7, which is also entitled Of the Idea of Necessary Connection, it was originally entitled Of the Idea of Power or Necessary Connection. So... This all makes sense if Hume is after this general idea of power... ...rather than the specific idea of necessary connection. Why does he entitle the section of the idea of necessary connection? Well, I think he does so in order to be able to use the result... ...for his discussion of liberty and necessity... ...which comes later in the treatise... ...and immediately in the next section in the inquiry. Okay, so now I'm going to run through quite quickly the progress of his discussion here. And what you should do is go away and read the section, taking note of what's going on at the various paragraphs. And I hope this will be enough to give you a guide um, and make sense of what's going on. So, how do we get this idea of necessary connection? Where does it come from? Or what I've suggested, this idea of consequentiality power. Well, he attacks Locke and says, Locke's account is no good. He says, Malebranche's account is no good. He then goes on to say, well, if we look at the powers of matter, if we, look, if we look at what we perceive of matter, we don't see any powers there. Think back to the Adam thought experiment, you know, with the billiard balls that we were looking at last week. Adam, by looking at the balls, could not tell what powers they would have. So clearly, in any single instance, uh, we cannot see any power or necessary connection. Uh, In the appendix of 1740, Hume added a paragraph, which is uh, now the 12th paragraph of the section, saying you won't find power amongst any of the perceived properties of mental activities either. If you examine your thoughts, introspect when your thoughts are going on, you won't be able to see within your thoughts, as it were, the power that brings about another thought. It's very mysterious. He then says, well, if you can't find this elusive idea in any single instance, you can't form a general idea either. And here he's drawing on his theory of abstract ideas, which comes in Treatise 117. We haven't discussed that in these lectures, but it's quite an important part of Hume's philosophy, Um, Here he just draws on it in this one paragraph. So, where does the key come? Where Where do we get this idea? Well, as we've seen, it comes from inductive inference. When we see A followed by B repeatedly, C and A infer a B. We immediately conceive a connection betwixt them and draw an inference from one to the other. This multiplicity of resembling instances, therefore, constitutes the very essence of power or connection, and is the source from which the idea of it arises. Now, when I see A followed by B, motion in one billiard ball followed by motion in the other, uh, we've seen that there's no impression of power there. I can't... I may see the colour of the ball, the shape of the ball, the movement of the ball, I may hear a sound, but I don't perceive anything that corresponds to the idea of power or necessary connection. How does repetition help? uh, Repeated occurrences of billiard balls bashing into each other just give more examples of the same, don't they? Well, in order to find any new impression there we have to look inside ourselves. It's something that's going on in our own minds that changes, not something outside. Now, recall this, um, this sentence here, which I quoted when we, uh, last week when we were dealing with 136, the argument concerning induction. And I mentioned that it was a nice epitome of Hume's argument. Perhaps it will appear in the end that the necessary connection depends on the inference instead of the inferences depending on the necessary connection. So the upshot of Hume's discussion of causation... is that you might have thought to start with... that the idea of necessary connection... uh, or power, causal power if you like, causal necessity... you might have thought that idea would come from... what we see of external objects... billiard balls bashing into each other and so on. But it turns out actually the key to that idea it lies in our habit of inference. When we make an inference, that provides the new idea somehow. Now, it's a little bit puzzling. How can it provide a new idea? I mean, I see one billiard ball moving and followed by movement in another one, and I see it again and again, and I see A, find myself inferring B. How does that give me a new impression? Well... He sometimes talks as though it's a feeling. This connection which we feel in the mind, this customary transition of the imagination from one object to its usual attendant, is the sentiment or impression from which we form the idea of power or necessary connection. And I've mentioned before how Hume, when he's talking about reflective impressions, internal impressions, seems to more or less equate them with feelings and emotions. So it sounds ever so like he's thinking that there's some feeling we get when we make an inductive inference, and that feeling is what gives us the idea of power or necessary connection. But if you think about it, that's really strange. How can having a particular feeling give me the idea of power or necessary connection? There's something very odd about that. I mean, suppose... Well, first of all, ask yourself the following question. When you make an inductive inference... When you see one thing followed by another again and again, see the one, infer the other, is there, in fact, a common feeling that you get? Probably not. Why should there be? Where's the evidence that there is one? Hume's given no evidence that there's some special feeling that arises. And it seems extremely implausible because we make these inferences all the time. I mean, imagine when you're driving a car. Think how many inductive inferences you're making all the time one after another after another. There's no special feeling that arises there all the time. The only thing that's common is the feeling of expectation, if you like. But that's going to be a different feeling depending on what you're expecting. And Hume himself gives arguments that really cast doubt on the idea that, this, that any such feeling, if there were one, could really be a genuine impression of necessary connection. Well, I think what's driving Hume here is simply his copy principle. He thinks that every idea has to have a matching impression. And so he's, he's shoehorning the phenomena into his theory. This determination is the only effect of the resemblance. That's the determination of the mind to infer from A to B is the only effect of the resemblance and therefore must be the same with power or efficacy whose idea is derived from the resemblance. Necessity, then, is nothing but an internal impression of the mind or a determination to carry our thoughts from one object to another. And can you see, there's a real mix-up here. He seems to be equating our tendency to make an inference with a feeling. But they're different things. Now, you can see, given Hume's theory of the mind, he thinks we have a, a faculty of reflection which makes us aware of what's going on in our minds. And... So when we do find ourselves making an inference, according to Hume, we will be aware of doing it. And he seems to be forced by his theory into saying, well, that must be an impression then. But actually, there's no reason why it should be. It's certainly not an impression like a feeling or a pain or something like that. It, it looks like it's to do the job that Hume wants, it ought to be much more like simply a reflective awareness of what is going on. A nice passage here from the Inquiry, which I think is, may shed light on, on how Hume is thinking. He talks about that inference of the understanding, which is the only connection that we can have any comprehension of. So, put, put yourself in Hume's shoes. He, he's looking for an elusive source of an idea. It's a very important idea. It's an idea we use all the time whenever we make a causal inference, and Hume is looking for the source of this, well, when I look at things out there, I don't see any causal glue. I just see one thing followed by another. What is it that links one event to another? And and what Hume is thinking is, well, actually, the only link is my making an inference from one to the other. It's my inference that links one thing to another. And you can see that what's needed, therefore, to to put that glue in there is not a feeling. It's got to be literally the inference. So I think if if we could help Hume out by saying, look, Hume, you've gone a little bit wrong here because you you have this kind of rather narrow notion of reflection as simply being like an internal sense. So as though you sense feelings, and that's what it does. But look, actually... You need a broader notion of reflection, one that encompasses reflective awareness of what's going on in your mind. If you seize on that and say, "Ah, oh, that's the clue to the idea of necessary connection, it's the, the inference from one to the other, which is what Hume is saying a lot of the time, but stop thinking that it has to be like a feeling, um, you get a much more satisfactory theory. I'm not saying it's a true theory, uh, but it's a certainly got a lot more going for it. Okay, so let's now see uh, where this leaves Hume with regard to necessity. He does seem to say that necessity, thus understood, is something that's in the mind, not in objects. Customary inference is the essence of necessity, So, necessity is something that exists in the mind, not in objects, nor is it possible for us ever to form the most distant idea of it, considered as a quality in bodies. Necessity is nothing but that determination of the thought to pass from causes to effects and from effects to causes, according to their experienced union. Now, some people say that this kind of language disappears from the inquiry. It doesn't. When we say, therefore, that one object is connected with another, we mean only that they have acquired a connection in our thought and give rise to this inference. Now, it makes it look ever so much as though Hume is a sort of sceptical subjectivist. Uh, he think, He's a relativist about necessity. He just thinks it's something that exists solely in our mind, um, maybe like many people think aesthetic qualities exist only in the mind. Now, one way in which Hume shouldn't be read, it's quite tempting when you see that, and you th- he's saying necessity is in the mind, not in objects. You might think he's saying, "Ah, oh, there's some kind of special causal glue in there that doesn't apply out there. He's not saying that. Um, rather, in order to understand what Hume is saying, I think you have to think about it in terms of his copy principle and see that he's trying to get some grasp on ideas by reflecting on where we get them. Um, He's saying that the only understanding we have of causal glue between one thing and another comes from our own tendency to make the inference. And that applies whether we're talking about external things or internal things. If we might reflect on our own sequence of thoughts and realize that thinking about one thing, say, makes us angry or makes us happy. Well, that's exactly the same. It's constant conjunction. We don't see any more causal glue in that case than in the external world. Uh, But we find ourselves ascribing it when we make the inference. Okay, so the whole theory looks a bit different crackpot in a way, doesn't it? I mean, he, he, he's, he's saying that causation is, isn't really in the world, it's all in the mind, or at least it looks like that's what he's saying. Um, and then he says, well, people won't believe me. They'll say this is wrong. But that's because they're biased. The mind has a great propensity to spread itself on external objects and to conjoin with them any internal impressions which they occasion." So people make this mistake all the time. I mean, you taste a fig, for example, and you smell it, and you're naturally inclined to attribute the taste to the physical thing and the smell to the physical thing. But actually we know that the taste and the smell aren't really in the physical thing at all. They're in your head. And this is the same kind of mistake, he says. And notice, he says this is a mistake That's quite important. This is a very famous passage in Hume interpretation because a lot of people read this and say, there we are, Hume is some kind of projectivist. He thinks that we project things out onto the world. Well, yes, there are strains in Hume of projectivism, but in this particular case, Hume is quite unambiguous in saying this is a mistake. So we'll come back to that later. But though this be the only reasonable account we can give of necessity, I doubt not that my sentiments will be treated by many as extravagant and ridiculous. What? The efficacy of causes lie in the determination of the mind? As if causes didn't operate entirely independent of the mind and would not continue their operation even though there was no mind existent to contemplate them. To remove power from all causes and bestow it on a being that is no ways related to the cause or effect, but by perceiving them, is a gross absurdity and contrary to the most certain principles of human reason. So this is Hume putting words into the mouth of his opponent, saying, I'm sure people will say my theory is mad. They'll say this kind of thing. And Hume replies... I can only reply to all these arguments that the case is here much the same as if a blind man should pretend to find a great many absurdities in the supposition that the colour of scarlet is not the same with the sound of a trumpet, nor light the same with solidity. If we really have no idea of a power or efficacy in any object, or of any real connection betwixt causes and effects, t'will be to little purpose to prove that an efficacy is necessary in all operations, We do not understand our own meaning in talking so, but ignorantly confound ideas which are entirely distinct from each other. There's no retreat there. Hume is saying that somebody who says his theory is ridiculous is like a blind man who, when told that he doesn't understand what scarlet is, says, I do know what scarlet is. It's like the sound of a trumpet. And you say, no, you haven't got a clue. You don't know what scarlet is because you can't see. And the guy may think that he's got a grasp of scarlet, but he hasn't. He thinks he's got a certain idea, but he hasn't got it. And in exactly the same way, Hume is saying that there's a certain kind of idea, supposedly of necessity that people think they have, but they haven't got it. That's not the idea they've got. They're mistaken. Now, that doesn't mean that Hume is a total subjectivist about causation. Certainly not, and we'll see more on this later. As to what may be said, that the operations of nature are independent of our thought and reasoning, I allow it and accordingly have observed that objects bear to each other the relations of contiguity and succession that like objects may be observed in several instances to have like relations, and that all this is independent of and antecedent to the operations of the understanding. So we've got an objective and a subjective side to our idea of power or necessity. And Hume, of course, notoriously and famously gives two definitions. Now, the first definition, of course, is based on regular succession. A followed by B, constant conjunction. Second definition is based on the mind's tendency to infer B from A. So here's the famous passage. Remember, he has... he's been looking for the origin, the source, the impression that gives rise to the idea of necessary connection. He's found that it arises characteristically in a situation where we have experienced A constantly conjoined with B, we see an A, we find ourselves inferring a B. And he seems to think somehow that the inference itself yields the idea. So there are two aspects to this. There's the constant conjunction, the circumstances in which we find ourselves doing that, and there's the inference. There may two definitions be given of this relation. We may define a cause to be an object precedent and contiguous to another and where all the objects resembling the former are placed in the like relations of precedency and contiguity to those objects which resemble the latter. If this definition be esteemed defective because drawn from objects foreign to the cause, we may substitute this other definition in its place, viz... a cause is an object precedent and contiguous to another and so united with it that the idea of the one determines the mind to form the idea of the other and the impression of the one to form a more lively idea of the other. Should this definition also be rejected for the same reason? I know no other remedy. Now, those little passages about should this be esteemed defective and all the rest have given rise to a lot of discussion in the secondary literature. I'm not going to say much about that, um, Here we've got basically two definitions, one of which focuses on the constant conjunction, one of them on the tendency of the mind to draw inferences. Now, Hume's view seems to be that those definitions give the only proper understanding we can have of causation. And do notice, by the way, this is vitally important... Hume's discussion of the idea of necessary connection does not culminate in a rejection of that idea, right? He's not rejected the idea, he's vindicated it. He's found the impression from which it's derived. He hasn't ended up with the conclusion that there is no such impression. So whatever else he's doing here, he is not rejecting the idea of necessary connection. But he does want to reject some bogus notions of necessary connection. So he thinks, for example, that as we feel a customary connection, we transfer that feeling to the objects, as nothing is more usual than to apply to external objects every internal sensation which they occasion. Um, I've mentioned already the passage about the fig where he says that we naturally attribute uh, taste and smell to the physical object. And that's a mistake. And in a footnote there, in 1314, right in the heart of the discussion, Necessary Connection, he refers to this passage and says, there you are, it's the same kind of mistake. So when people attribute to external objects the same feelings that they feel internally... um, Again, the, the, the sentiment of endeavor. When you suppose I, I try to push something, or I heave on the table, I feel a feeling of effort, and vulgar. The vulgar, ordinary people, very naturally read some feeling of effort into their idea of necessary connection. That's a mistake. So these are mistaken ideas of necessary connection. But the more precise Humean idea as I've said, is vindicated by Hume's discussion, and I've put some, uh, a quotation there at the start, an important passage in the middle of the discussion, where he says, it might seem that we have no such idea, but actually it's more likely that we've made a mistake somewhere and we've just got the idea wrongly applied here. Let's carry on. And he goes on, as we've seen, to find an impression which vindicates the idea. Now, I think what Hume is doing with these two definitions... It, it's tricky. There's a lot of discussion in the literature on this. Um, but I, I think the, the simplest, consistent way of understanding his definitions is something like this. In order to understand what necessary connection is, in order to grasp hold of it at all, you have to be the sort of being who naturally makes inferences in response to constant conjunctions. Right? You see an A, again, followed by a B again and again and again. You see an A, you find yourself inferring a B. Got that? Here you go. You know, I'll show you the billiard balls. Right, that. That's the idea I'm on to. Necessary connection. It's that tendency to make inferences. Now, given that we are the kind of creatures we are, we find ourselves naturally doing that in response to constant conjunctions. And essentially, I think Hume is saying that is the right and appropriate thing to do. Apply that, that is the tendency to make inferences, in response to constant conjunction. So the definition is actually includes within itself a kind of recipe for being more systematic. And this This kind of thing is quite common in Hume's philosophy. The same kind of thing goes on in his moral philosophy and his aesthetics. He wants to say, you can only understand some way of thinking, either aesthetic judgment or moral judgment, by having a certain kind of experience. If you've never disapproved of anything that anyone's ever done, then you just don't understand morality. You've never felt that characteristic thing of approval or disapproval. You don't know what people are talking about when they talk about morality. But if you have experienced it, then sometimes you might approve or disapprove in very inconsistent ways. You might do so on inappropriate occasions. And you can learn to refine your judgments of morality or aesthetics so that you apply them in the appropriate cases. And I think very, very similar thing going on here. The appropriate... Places in which to assign causal necessity are cases of constant conjunction. Okay, Hume goes on and draws some corollaries of the definitions. I'm not going to spend time on those, except to just point out that uh, here this links up closely with what I was saying in the first lecture. You can see that Hume does have a payoff from his discussion of causation both in relation to things like the cosmological argument and to the discussion of free will. Okay, now I'm going to whip through quite quickly a discussion of a very prominent debate in recent Hume literature. Um, And I'm going to explain very briefly why I think the debate is, or ought to be, pretty much settled. Uh, Again, I'm going to be somewhat opinionated here Uh, And I'm going to be summarizing um, quite a lot that I said in a long paper a couple of years ago, 2009, in the journal Mind. It's about 25,000 words, so it needs some summary. But if you want more detail on all of this, uh, feel free to go and look there. Okay, so Hume has generally been read as denying the existence of any kind of necessary connection that goes beyond the two definitions. He's given these two definitions, that's all we can understand by necessary connection. To suppose anything more is just thinking in ways that we don't understand and can't make sense of. But uh, some recent writers, starting with John Wright, he wrote a book in 1983, quite influential. Uh, Edward Craig, Galen Strawson is probably the most forthright of these. And uh, Peter Cale, who's here in Oxford, is is quite sympathetic to this this view, though he's more, gives, uh, ascribes Hume more an agnostic position. But these people think that Hume, when he defines causation, isn't really trying to define it. Um, They think that Hume believes in some kind of causation, real causation, that goes beyond the two definitions. And, as I say, this has been very influential. I think the, mo- the main reason why people are tempted towards this interpretation is because they think somehow that on the traditional interpretation, Hume shouldn't take causation seriously, when, in fact, Hume does take causation seriously. So, I want to run through uh, some of the points for and against. Incidentally, you'll see this, um, this position commonly referred to as sceptical realism. And the idea is that causation in things goes beyond relations of regular succession and inference. It's not just a matter of what's captured in Hume's two definitions. And it's normally characterised like this, that there is something in objects which, if we knew it, would licence a priori inference. If we could, if we could know the nature ...of those billiard balls, we would be able to infer a priori that the second one would move. And that is supposed to give the genuine understanding of necessity, the real notion of necessity, uh, which supposedly Hume believes in. So, first of all, I want to say uh, something in favour of the premise which I take to be largely driving this view... Hume does take causation very seriously. Um, So, examples. He says that causation is the basis of all empirical inference. We saw that last time. One of the first steps in his discussion of induction, he says, all inference beyond the present testimony of the memory and senses relies on causation. Okay. Okay. He proposes rules by which to judge of causes and effects. Treatise 1315, the section immediately after the discussion necessary in connection. He defines rules by which to judge of causes and effects. By which we may know when things really are causes and effects, he says. Well, he's clearly a causal realist, isn't he? He talks of secret powers... And he advocates a search for hidden causes underlying inconstant phenomena. We've already seen that. Remember where where I talked about the the peasant and the the scientist and the watch doesn't work? And the scientist, or the philosopher in Hume's language, uh, is praised for looking deeper for hidden causes. So here are some passages to back these up. Uh, Hume clearly believes in causation as the basis of empirical inference. We have the rules by which to judge of causes and effects and uh, some choice quotations there. You've got Hume talking of secret powers, so particularly in um, Section 4 of the Inquiry. Look at this, the secret powers of bodies, those powers and principles on which the influence of objects entirely depends, those powers and forces on which this regular course and succession of objects totally depends, And Galen Strawson looks at these quotations and he says, There you are. Those quotes by themselves are enough to refute the traditional view of Hume because Hume obviously believes in causes. He believes in hidden causes. I need a drink after quoting from uh, Galen. Uh, To which the answer is yes, he believes in causes, Galen. Uh, But he has given his theory as to what we mean by a cause, he takes it seriously. He takes his copy principle seriously. Uh, I personally do not agree with the copy principle, so I don't feel I have to follow Hume here. But Hume himself seems to believe in his copy principle, and he thinks that that gives the genuine understanding of causation. Yes, Hume believes in causation, but he thinks we have to understand it in the way that his definitions prescribe. Uh, So it should not be, but often has been, part of the traditional understanding of Hume that he somehow denies necessity. People say, oh, Hume denies necessity. No, he doesn't. He doesn't deny necessity any more than he denies causes. He repeatedly says, necessity makes an essential part of causation. Okay, we saw right at the beginning of of one three two. he said, here's this essential part of the idea of cause, necessary connection, let's go and hunt it down. At no point does he suggest that you can have a cause without necessary connection, at least in the sense I've suggested as consequentiality. So again and again, he says necessity is essential to causation, so given all this evidence that Hume believes in causes, he must believe in necessity too, suitably interpreted. And here's that business of uh, looking for hidden causes. So, Hume does indeed take causal science very seriously indeed, In his view, in fact, all science must be causal. Causal relations can be established by rules. Explanation involves reference to secret powers. And we should search for hidden causes. But none of that implies that Hume is a causal realist with a capital C and a capital R. This is important. When you see realism with a capital R in a discussion of Hume, typically that means... Realism in the Strawson sense, the Galen-Strawson sense, as implying something above and beyond the two definitions. I think Hume is a causal realist with a small r. He believes in causes as defined by his definitions. So let's see. Um, Again, I'm going to go quite fast. I just want you to get an overall shape of this. You can follow up the references in your own time. There's plenty of literature for you to read on it. I just want to give you the overall shape of, of how the debate uh, goes. So, here are an initial uh, four points that can be made uh, in favour of seeing Hume as an anti realist capital R. First of all, George Berkeley. George Berkeley believes in causal science, he's a great believer in it. But he doesn't actually think that when you identify causes in nature, you're identifying real causes. The only real cause, when one billiard ball hits another, is God. Nevertheless, we can do our science. And he praises Newton. Because God has set things up so beautifully that if we do search for hidden causes and hidden structure and all the rest, we'll find it. What we're finding, actually, is just the way God works. When when we refer to all these hidden objects, they're not really there, except insofar as we have perceptions of them. So... If Barclay can be pro-science, there's no reason why Hume can't, uh, whether or not he believes in the kind of cause that Strawson believes in. Um, <clears throat> the argument that we've seen, uh, that I've sketched, is very naturally read as implying that Hume is anti-realist about thick powers. I mean, all that business about uh, when, when he's considering the exclamation of his opponent... That sounds just the kind of thing that Galen Strawson says when he says, oh, this is such a ridiculous view that no philosopher could ever hold it. Um, That incident is a very poor argument. Hume describes his view about causation as being the most violent paradox of the entire treatise. And there's quite a lot else in the treatise that is rather paradoxical. The conceivability principle, we'll see, is very hard to square with uh, the new Hume view, and we'll see a prominent footnote. So first of all, Barclay, there's a quotation to back up the instrumentalism. Uh, there is Hume, a passage which I th- find quite reminiscent of the Barclay one. I think if you, if you read them together, you can, it's, it's quite plausible that Hume has Barclay in mind, or at least is thinking along very similar lines. What science is ultimately all about is reducing things to uh, order, reducing the principles of things uh, so that we are able to um, explain more, predict more, and so on. And that's entirely consistent with anti-realism with a small r. Um, We've already looked quickly through the argument. I'm just picking out some points there and giving you some uh, references. Notice that the references I'm giving you are from the treatise, the abstract, and the inquiry. Um, We'll be coming next week to part of Hume's philosophy which is very difficult to interpret, partly because we only have essentially one main text. This isn't the case with the stuff on induction and causation. We've got three main texts and they all, they all pretty much fit. Uh, so in all of these, the copy principle is introduced as a tool for deciding questions of meaning. The idea that Hume is not trying to find the meaning of the notion of cause simply runs contrary to his own texts. Um, again we've got passages from Treatise, Abstract and Inquiry all talking about meaning and significance in the very context of this discussion moreover when Hume actually identifies the impression, the internal impression, he states exactly the kind of anti-realist conclusion you'd expect and the discussion culminates with two definitions definitions, meaning, they go together don't they? if somebody's defining something and they've said all along that they're doing this in order to clarify the meaning, shouldn't we take him literally? He really thinks he's explaining what we mean by causation. And if he thinks what we mean by causation and causal necessity is defined by those two definitions, then it does look like he's saying that's what necessity is. Conceivability principle. Hume uses this lots, lots and lots, Whatever we conceive is possible, at least in a metaphysical sense. He repeatedly says that a priori, anything could produce anything. Because you can conceive of that billiard ball's motion being followed by absolutely anything, therefore it's possible that something different could result. That means it's absolutely possible. Metaphysically possible. Not causally possible. Causation's different. But... Hume is clearly drawing a distinction here between metaphysical necessity and causal necessity. Otherwise, you cannot make sense of what he says in these passages. Um, So what the new Humeans are doing is saying, actually, causal necessity underneath really is conceptual necessity. It's the kind of thing that, if you knew about it, you could draw an a priori inference. Well, if it were, I just don't see how to square that with the conceivability principle that Hume uses again and again. You remember those passages where Hume talks about the hidden forces and all that? The uh, paragraph uh, 14 of section 4 of the inquiry? It must certainly be allowed that nature has kept us at a great distance from all her secrets and has afforded us only the knowledge of a few superficial qualities of objects, while she conceals from us those powers and principles on which the influence of these objects entirely depends... Our senses inform us of the color, weight, and consistence of bread, but neither sense nor reason can ever inform us of those qualities which fit it for the nourishment and support of a human body. Sight or feeling conveys an idea of the actual motion of bodies, but as to that wonderful force or power which would carry on a moving body forever in a continued change of place and which bodies never lose by by communicating it to others, of this we cannot form the most distant conception Now, Lord Kames, he wasn't Lord Kames then, he was Henry Hume, uh, kinsman of Hume, uh, David Hume, wrote in 1751 uh, his essays on the principles of morality and natural religion. He quoted those three sentences, or paraphrased them at least. And then he said, here our author contradicts himself because he's referring to exactly the kinds of powers which he denies. That just sounds like Strawson's criticism. That on the, new Hume, you know, on the old Hume interpretation, Hume is contradicting himself. So what does Hume do in the 1750 edition? He adds a footnote. The word power is here used in a loose and popular sense. If you actually want to understand what I mean about this, go and look at section 7. And you might say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> 1751, 1750, is this backwards causation? No. These are two people who knew each other well and swapped manuscripts. Keynes actually... Uh, tried to persuade Hume not to publish the Inquiry. He'd seen it before it was published. I have no doubt at all that this, this footnote, which follows in the very next sentence after the three that Keynes quoted, is a response to Keynes. So when people look at those passages in Section 4 of the Inquiry and say, look, here is Hume referring to real powers, sure he is. And if you want to understand what he means by a real power, go to Section 7 of the Inquiry of the idea of necessary connection. The reason, incidentally, I think that there's lots of this power language in the inquiry... ...is nothing to do with what the new Humeans talk about. Nothing to do with that at all. It's rather that Hume has realised by then, by 1748... ...he's realised that science isn't a matter of p- predicting event A followed by event B... ...or event followed A followed by B when C is present but not when D is present or whatever. No, it's not like that. What happens when you have one billiard ball moving towards another in order to predict what happens, you don't just think in terms of A and B. You think in terms of things like momentum, energy, forces. You calculate. And once you start doing that, you start using the language of powers. Um, Why does Hume give two definitions? Well, it seems puzzling. I've said something about that. Um, but I want to suggest that if you read through those, those notes that, it, that are in the slides I've gone over, but also take a careful look at Hume's theory of morality, and I think we find a plausible account of what's going on with Hume. Um, as I mentioned uh, when I was explaining it before, Unless you've had moral feelings, you don't even know what people are talking about when they talk about morality. But once you've got that crucial idea, you can then go ahead and apply it according to a systematic definition, according to which personal merit consists altogether in the possession of mental qualities, useful or agreeable to the person himself or to others. So this explains what we mean by virtue... Something, an action that gives the pleasing sentiment of approbation—that's what we mean by a virtue. And once we, when we feel that approbation, we know what virtuous means. The first definition says, "Well, if you actually go and look at the things to which we apply that, you'll find they are these, and uh, that is how it should properly be applied." So I think. That gives a pretty consistent account of what's going on in Hume's discussion of causation. I've provided I w- more slides. You haven't got those all now, but you will have next week. There'll be, there'll be another 12 on the other side of the handout for next week. Um, I'm just providing those for you to look at and follow up uh, yourselves, and I hope you'll find those helpful. Right. See you in two weeks' time, because... Uh, Next week I'm going to be enjoying the warmth of Moscow and a conference devoted to Hume's 300th year. Um, Can I just have a quick show of hands? I'm sorry I've gone a bit over time. Quick show of hands. We, We have actually four choices for fitting in the extra lecture that we need, either in week seven or week eight. Here are the four choices. Three till four, i.e. immediately before this lecture, week seven. Uh, Five till six, that is immediately after the lecture, week seven. And the same again in week eight. Which of you could not make it if it were three till four, week seven? (laughs) Which of you could not make it if it was three till four, week eight? Mm, Nearly the same. Which of you could not make it if it was five till six, uh, week seven? None. What about five till six, week eight? Right, five till six, week seven, it is. All right, so we'll have two lectures next week with a ten-minute break in between. All right, see you then.